Hi guys, and welcome back to another episode of Confabulation. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to our amazing community partners, Landers Coffee. They are still doing the the damn thing. <laughs> they are serving up <laughs> great coffee right downstairs below us. Please go check them out. Please support them. They are a small business and we want to make sure to support them like they've supported us. We want to make them just like Starbucks. Um, stop by and grab a drink. Today we are having a very special guest. Um, she is near and dear to our heart. She is our legal advocate here at our sister's house. I'm going to let her introduce herself. Um. Uh, hi, my name is Jill Jackson. I am the legal advocate at our sister's house. Okay. Um, Today, we're just going to hear Jill's story. I don't know if many of you guys know, but Jill is a survivor of domestic violence and she offered to share her story with us. And we felt like this would touch a lot of our clients to know that they are working with people who have experienced um, what, they, what they're going through and can sympathize with them. So if Jill would like to start from the beginning and share her story. Um. Wow, so I guess the beginning was um, the, uh, my ex-husband, I'd known him since he was about 14 years old because his sister was my best friend. I always had a crush on him. Um, and we went to the same high school and, you know, he was good looking and he was Mr. Player Player and I was nice, innocent girl and but I never told him I liked him. Fast forward, you know, maybe a, eh, ten, nine, 10 years later and he had gotten married and had um, a child. I had had a child um, and I was working at Nordstrom. He was there shopping um, and I just ran into him. I hadn't seen him in like nine years. Um, and then we just kind of got together and I didn't really think about um, any red flags at that time because I had known him so long and, um, you know, we kind of, in a way, grew up together. So, I, you know, the way he was was the way he was to me. You know, he was Mr. Player and yeah, I mean, looking back, I could see how controlling, you know, he had the, a controlling nature, but you, you don't really think about that stuff when you're in it. It doesn't, especially when you're young, you know, just those things don't really register. And I did the whole, you know, things I didn't like about him. I did the whole, oh, you know, I can change him because we love each other and all that stuff. Um, we ended up having two, bio, two biological kids together. Um, and they're all grown now, but um, the, the abuse started showing up, the, the emotional abuse started showing up real early because um, he would make, he would offer to drive me to work and offer to pick me up. And, you know, at first I thought, oh, this is so nice, you know, and then it started becoming, there weren't cell phones back then. <laughs> I guess I'm aging myself, but there weren't cell phones back then. So it wasn't like he could call me all the time on my cell phone, but he used to call my job all the time. What are you doing for lunch? Well, I'll take you to lunch. And, and then I just started thinking to myself, well, God, you're around me all the time. And at first it didn't bother me because, you know, when that love stuff is going on, it's all, you think it's cute. But it quickly became not cute. And I quickly started feeling like, you know, I'm just being boxed in. I, you know, I can't, I don't have, he doesn't leave me time to do my own life, um, see my own friends, spend time with my own family. And that's where the isolation started um, coming in. Um, and after a while, it just became normal, you know. Um, and then this was before the physical abuse started. And about two months into the relationship, 
Um, we were at an after hours bar and he got mad at me about something. I can't even remember what it was, but it was, probably doesn't matter because it was so trivial. And he punched me in my face in the car out in the parking lot, outside the car in the parking lot. I had never been hit by a man before. I, I absolutely had never been hit in the face before. And when people say, joke and say, I saw stars, I literally saw stars and fell out. Um, and so I don't know why, but um, they took me to the hospital, him and his friend took me to the hospital and I was in the back of the car pretending like I was still unconscious, but I wasn't. I just, I just didn't want, I didn't know what to do or how to handle it. So they took me to the hospital. Back in those days, they weren't really into domestic violence at hospitals. Um, and so he kept looking at, he lied and said, I fell. Um, and I just went along with it. To, you know, I don't know, just scared to say anything. And, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, he's just drunk or, and, and, he, had, and he had popped a Valium late earlier that evening. So I thought, you know, you're just drunk or you're just high. Oh, you, you, won't, you wouldn't act like this. You wouldn't have done that to me if you weren't drunk or high. And that was not the case. This went on for years and years and years. Um, we were together for 18 years and married for about 10. And it was just a downward spiral, spiral the whole relationship. There's so much stuff that happened. Um, I mean, we could be here all day talking about that. So that's basically what happened um, until we moved, I mean, we moved to Arizona. Um, we moved up here to Washington. We, moved, we lived in Portland. Um, and um, eventually I decided to leave. I've let, I had left many times and been brought back by gun, shotgun, um, choking, threats of death, um, until one time I just didn't care anymore. I just didn't care. So I left and came, and came back up to Portland and I filed for divorce and uh, you know any of any legal clients out there know you know when you leave that's just the beginning of your legal problems when you have children um and it's and especially if you're married so you know that all that all went wherever it went but um but I decided to get myself together and go back to school because I wanted to understand why I did that, why, why I did the things I did, why he did the things he did, why, why I, how did I become a victim, why, how did he become an abuser. So um, my therapy for myself, I didn't actually go to therapy per se, but my therapy for myself was going back to school and majoring in psychology um, to learn about behaviors, why people do the things they do. Um, and so just over time, over the years, I started to heal, started to really understand my situation, what had happened to me, my, what I was experiencing. Um, and here I am today, uh, 20 years later. <laughs> it didn't take me 20 years to go to school, but I'll, the process of being divorced till now um, has been 20 years. So that was about 20 years ago. The abuse was very severe. I've been in the hospital numerous times. Um, I have lo I lost three jobs because of it. Um, I kept starting, stopping and starting going back to school. Um, my children are damaged uh, from it. To this day, they have certain behaviors that I know are from what they witnessed, what no child should ever witness. Um, 
So it, it had a lot of consequences. Um, yeah, so that's basically it. I'm, I'm gonna let um, the other speak, guest speakers ask, or the other speakers ask questions if you want, and I can get more in depth about other things, but that, that was basically what happened. While you were, you know, experiencing all of this, did you reach out to any like family members or friends and let them know what was going on? Um, good question, Gabe. Yes. And they quickly got tired of me because I kept going back and back and back to him. At first they were willing to help. And, you know, my mother wanted to have him killed. <laughs> my dad wanted to personally kill him. Um, yeah, it was mostly family members, but after a while, you know, you, you start to, and especially through isolation, you start to, um, lose a lot of your connections, A, and then B, a lot of people over time just get tired of you. They just do, they get tired because they don't understand the dynamics of domestic violence. They just kind of get tired of you. They get tired of you, them helping you and then you going right back and, and they don't understand what you're going through psychologically and emotionally. So I did reach out to a lot of um, different people and I got help from them over and over and over and over again until they just got sick of me. And then once left on to my own devices, I just knew, you know, there were, there was an incident, um, but a, a defining moment. And I just did it. I basically just had to do it on my own. Back then they didn't have a lot of resources for um, victims of domestic violence. And I have to say as, as, as a black female, um, I, I was, when I, whenever I did try to reach out somewhere, um, I felt not believed. I felt like I wasn't believed and because I was black and it was so what, you know, that kind of thing. Like at the hospitals I was in um, and um, clinics, emergency rooms, stuff like that. Are you comfortable talking about that defining moment that made you want to leave? And um... yeah, well, yeah. So I was pregnant. I don't recommend this for anyone, any by any victims. This is just what happened to me and how I reacted. Um, but I don't recommend this because many women are, are sitting in a prison cell be because of these types of things. But I remember uh, I was at work. I was eight months pregnant with my youngest son. And uh, I, can't, I, I didn't want to go home. I, I just couldn't go. It was like, God, I just don't want to go in that house. Um, and so I went to the movies. I'll never forget it because Boys in the Hood had just come out <laughs> and I wanted to see it. So um, he was supposed to pick me up from work and I just left work early so that he couldn't pick me up. And I went, I walked to the movie theater because it was just like four or five blocks from where I worked. And I sat in that theater and watched that movie twice. And I took the bus home I didn't call anyone or anything. And as soon as I got in the house, it all started. Um, and his grandmother used to grow these huge um, squash in her garden. They're just huge. Um, and they were, there was a bowl of them sitting on the table in the kitchen. And my three of my nephews and my two other older sons were there at the house they were upstairs playing video games and he was just screaming and yelling at me and jerking my arm and 
and, and in my head, I, I started thinking to myself, what are you doing? You know, just what, what exactly are you doing here? How did you get here? And uh, he picked up a squash and threw it at me and I dodged it. And he picked up another one and he missed me with that one. And um, I remember saying to him, if you pick up one more of those squash, um, I'm, I, I, I'm gonna, somebody, somebody's going to jail and somebody's going to the boneyard. I'm not going to the boneyard. And I remember him laughing and he threw it. And while I was watching the squash go come at me, uh, out the corner of my eye, I saw my nephew's baseball bat sitting by the basement door. And I picked it up and I swung it at his head. And I, all I remember is blood squirting all over the walls in the kitchen and he fell by the basement stairs. I shoved him down the basement stairs. He was unconscious. I had uh, cracked his skull and right um, near the top of his head. And I just ran around the basement, making sure all the windows were locked. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, it's not like he couldn't unlock them and get out, but, I, but it wasn't not to let anyone in. It was so he couldn't get out. I don't, that made no sense to me later, but, um, and then I, I made sure he was unconscious still at the bottom of the stairs. I was, I was not in my right mind, but this is where uh, abuse can take you. I mean, if you've been abused for so long, emotionally, psychologically, mentally, and physically all at the same time, so I ran upstairs and got my, all my nephews, my two older sons, shoved them in the car, went to my mom's house and told her what happened. And um, yeah, <laughs> that's basically, and my mom was like, asked me if he was dead. And I said, I don't know. So we called around hospitals and after a couple of hours, I found out he was in the hospital. The lady across the street had called an ambulance for him because she saw him crawling out the basement window. So I knew he was alive. And I went to the hospital and faked, uh, did this fake thing like, oh my God, my husband's here. Um, I heard he was hitting the head and no, no, like it wasn't me. And they were like, oh yes. and here's his room number. I went to his room and I just looked at him and I said, if you ever put your hands on me again, I'll finish the job. And he just, he couldn't talk because he, they had, they, I think it was like 15, 20 stitches they had to take in his head or more. And his head was all bandaged up and he was hooked up to an IV. And all I could think was, boy, you know, this would be real easy to get rid of you in this room. But that's a lot of, a lot of victims become abusers too, you know, because you, once you've been abused over and over and over and over again for years, then you become, you can become violent as well. And that's kind of what happened to me. But I, but I knew in my head, that's not me. That's not who I am, you know, but um, that was the defining moment. Now, mind you, I still moved to uh, Arizona with him, um, but he never—he never physically put his hands on me again. But he, the emotional and verbal abuse escalated, and so yeah, just got to the point where he went to work one day. I had already um, gotten a U-Haul. I took what I wanted to take, he didn't have, there was nothing in that house I wanted, except for me to get out of there in Arizona. I drove um, back here, back to Portland and with my kids. And that was the end of that. I filed for divorce when I moved back to Portland and we, and that was the last time I ever lived with him. Jill, how long, when, so, after he was hospitalized, 
y'all moved to Arizona, how long did you stay in Arizona with him after? Um, like three years, three, what, four years. And what made you actually leave Arizona? Like the fine, I'm curious the like the time in which you actually left and never went back. What, what was different about that time? Um, that's a good question, Autumn. Uh, I think it was, well, I just didn't care anymore. And, and I actually went out and had an affair on him and I wanted him to know. And, and, and he did know, um, but I just wanted him to feel the same pain I felt. Cause he always had affairs on me. Just wanted him to feel that pain. And I don't know, one day, we had a swimming pool and every morning I would get up and jump in the pool and swim. And I was just laying in the pool one day, looking up at the sky and it just said, get, what, get out of here. Just get out of here. It just came in my head because I wasn't doing anything but biding time. It wasn't a marriage. I didn't care about him anymore. Um, I was having an affair. <laughs> I didn't care about the person I was having the affair with either. And I just, you know, I didn't care about anything. I just, and my kids were floundering because um, you're so busy paying attention to what's going on with you. You don't even pay the slightest attention usually about what's going on with your kids. Um, just little things, you know, I'd get calls from their school and behavioral issues. I didn't care about myself. I didn't care about him. I didn't care about that house. I didn't care about anything. And I just was sitting in that pool one day thinking, you don't care about anything. What, is this your life? And then I remember um, getting on the phone, making arrangements to get, it to, get a U-Haul to Oregon. <laughs> And he went to work then, and then I did, I like, and this was like three or four days later. I didn't tell my kids, I didn't say anything. They just didn't go to school that day. And I put everything that I cared about in that U-Haul and got in that U-Haul and started driving back to Oregon. And that, it was, I, it was just odd, I don't know. I think, I think because when you've been abused for so long and, and um, you're numb to everything, um, and you're, you're just numb to everything and everybody, if you don't start reflecting about that numbness, which I did, luckily, um, then you're, you, you, you may be stuck there. And I just started that day in the pool I don't know why I have, I have no explanation for that, but it was reflection. And I started realizing that my life wasn't gonna get any better unless I did something about it. Cause he sure wasn't, it's all fine for him. Um, and my kids weren't gonna be any better off. Um, and what was gonna happen to me? I mean, I just actually started thinking what's gonna happen to you? And um, I was a really very happy-go-lucky kid, basically. I was, a, I was a pretty happy teenager. I The last time I was happy was before I met him. That was the last time I was really happy and I, was, and I started realizing it. It's a self-reflection, I guess, but yeah. Looking back, um besides obviously getting into a relationship with him, what might you have done differently while you were experiencing the abuse that you wish you might've done? You mean early on when I really started noticing? Yeah, or any point, anything, any big you know, things you wish you would have done different? Oh, I, differently? I never would have entertained him in my life, ever. I would have never entertained him in my life. And, um, and yeah, he just wouldn't have been in my life if I could have done things differently, looking back with what I know now. 
But, you know, when you're young and you think you're in love and it's, oh, I love you and we love each other. And, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, but the old adage, what's love got to do with it? As You can love somebody or fall in love with somebody. That doesn't mean you should be with them. And that doesn't mean that they love you back. And that doesn't mean that love is equal, right? And it doesn't even mean that it's love because who... I think a lot of people think um, that um, abusers, they only love to the capacity that they can love, which for, nor for normal, healthy, mentally stable people, that looks very different from, from the way an abuser loves. They'll swear up and down they love you. And there's all these good times, you know, it's that honeymoon cycle. There's all this, this pouring out of feelings and gift giving and hugging and laughing and talking and these good times. And all they ever do is turn into um, the storm that's coming and then, and then the explosion. And then it just starts all over again until it just becomes this downward spiral that you, you can't get out of or you have a real tough time getting out of. And it's very damaging. Um, to a human being to have that happen to them. It's really damaging. Like even to this day, I know my triggers and I know um, I used to, when people even put their hands close to my head or face, I would flinch. Um, I don't do that anymore, but I still have my triggers. Um, and I mean, I've always been cynical my whole life. Um, and in a way, I, you know, I had healthy pessimism, but I think really, truly, that's why um, I'm, you know, the way I am. I've lived through so much that, um, and I've seen so much, you know, um, we, there's a lot of stuff that I've seen or an experience people just should never, no human being should ever have to, um, because it causes a lot of trauma. But this is why I'm very pessimistic. And these are coping mechanisms, right? So you have all these coping mechanisms when you're in the abuse that don't really serve you when you're outside of the abuse. Instead of becoming useful coping mechanisms, they become detrimental to your, um, your social and emotional growth. Um, and I've had to learn to deal with that too. Now, I, I do think I have a healthy amount of skepticism um, and I can usually see the writing on the wall on a lot of things and call a lot of things out. Um, but you, 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 you're, not the, you're not the person you could have been if that hadn't happened. Like I was very sweet and loving and caring and giving and I'm very caring and giving. I don't, the sweetness went away somewhere, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, that comes with age too. But I'm not the person that I would have been without that abuse. I don't know who that person would have been. Um, I see a lot of people who are very trusting and loving and caring, and I'm very skeptical and I stand back and I'm, I'm very cynical. Um, okay, usually to my advantage, <laughs> but maybe sometimes not, you know, who, who would that, who would I have turned out to be? That's a loss, you know? So, and you have to regain that. You have to figure out who are you without this other person? Cause you're an extension of that person. Um, and you're, and you're not who you are on your own terms. I had to regain all that back. You think you know? that your story would be different if you'd had a resource and found access to it like our sister's house? Oh yeah, because I, I had to work through all that by myself. I had, it's, it was all by myself because I'm the one it happened to and it didn't happen to anyone else. So I had to um, deal with all that on my own, like every bit of it. Um, if I would have, um, been able to go to counseling or therapy or even had a DV advocate that understood my experience because, you know, 
for the most part, I didn't understand it. Um, yes, that probably would have been extremely helpful. Uh, my therapy was going to school and it worked for me. Does, that doesn't mean it'll work for everyone, but that's how I dealt with it. Have your kids ever talked to you about the situation or tried to find healing themselves about what they've witnessed? Uh, yeah, we talk about it. Um, we have talked about it over the years, um, but they don't, you know, for the most part, they don't understand their um, the, the little things about them that I know came from them growing up the way they did, right? They don't, they don't look at it like, because for the most part, my kids are really good. They're, you know, none of them are drug addicts. None of them have a whole bunch of issues. None of them have any mental health issues to speak of. Um, so, and they're all really pretty positive, but they're my kids and I know them and I know what happened to them throughout their whole lives. So. I can see it. And then, you know, I went to school and I got trained to see those types of things as well. They may not see it, but you know, there'll be times and I'll think to myself, yeah, I know where that came from. You know, like animosity or anger or, um, you know, one of my sons can be a little on the controlling side and I have had to beat that back. Um, right? By talking to him about that. Um, so they, they, they know, they know their dad, they know how their dad is. They grew up with him too. <laughs> All, but they had each other as well too, to talk about those things. And um, I was really lucky. They didn't blame me really. I know you know, they didn't blame, they used to get mad at me sometimes, but over, I mean, now they say stuff like, you know, they're really proud of me that I left um, and that I just, I, I, and where I am today, what I've been able to accomplish for myself. They're really proud about that because they know what I went through, especially my oldest son, you know, so. For all the things that you went through and you being an advocate now, how do you use you know, the experiences that you've experienced in your own life in your advocacy with the people that you interact with? Well, I mean, you know, you, I mean, we're taught in school that never tell your own story and all this stuff. But I mean, you know, this is, this is a guidebook and it's school, right? Um, so, I, when I'm with my clients, I want them to know that I don't just empathize with you. I can sympathize with you because I've been there. You know, I might tell a little, little part of my story here or there just to make them, to, to also create rapport um, and, and to let them know that, hey, I, I've been there. I get it. I understand what you're going through. I've had the same feelings, right? So, you know, don't think I don't understand. Like, you don't think you're just talking to someone who um, just, you know, dropped into this. I've been there. And, um, and so I think it helps a lot. It helps create rapport and it helps build trust. And it gets the ball rolling a lot quicker. <laughs> Because a lot of times, you know, everyone's abuse story is different, but there's, everything's the same. You know, everyone gets isolated. Everyone gets, goes through the honeymoon phase. Everyone um, has feelings of self-doubt and selflessness and whatnot. Um, now your abuser, there's all different kinds of abusers. But it's, but it's all about being controlled, power and control. And everyone has that experience. So we share a lot of the same experiences that a lot of people don't understand. You know, like, how could you let that happen to you? You're so smart. And you never had a boyfriend like that before. Why are you staying with him? And 
And so that other person will know I understand that. Like I never ask, I, I, I tend to, as I get um, older um, and I see different aspects um, and characteristics of each generation um, kind of under me, I start wondering, oh my goodness, because now there's so much technology and these people are getting stalked and they're, it just, the abuse has changed um, because there's so many other ways to replicate it. And, and, and so, um, but I do look at some of my clients and start thinking to myself and I'll be honest, like, oh no, come on. And I do it because I see them in me and I know what's going to happen, you know? And so sometimes I get, I can get frustrated, but you get burnt out very easily in this job, especially if, if you've been abused. Um, because, you know, some of these stories can be very triggering. You think you've gotten rid of a trigger because it hasn't shown up in 10 years and you'll hear someone's story and you're like, you know, kind of triggering. But yeah, it just creates um, a, a, a level of rapport and trust and, um, and respect too, because I, I respect you as a human being for what you're, you know, what you're going through, because I've been there, you know. Yeah. Um, so I know that because he is still the father of your kids, do they still interact with him? Um, and has he ever apologized to you? Like, how do you guys interact now? Like having to, oh, well, kids are grown and the fact that you guys had to raise these kids together. Um, my oldest son tolerates him. My youngest son, that's his dad. He loves him. My oldest son, that's his stepdad. So he just tolerates him and he puts on this facade when he's around him. That isn't really him. He just does it to get through the evening. Um, my, my middle son, who is biologically his, loves his dad, but he knows his dad. And he doesn't take any crap off his dad. And they got into a fight, you know, one time. And it was pretty bad. And my son kicked his ass, for lack of a better term. Um, and so then that there's that level of that's even the playing field for them. So my youngest son loves his dad and, under, and understands stuff. But he doesn't take any crap off of him. And neither does my my. Um, my younger son, the middle son and the younger son don't. And they get into it sometimes, you know. As for me, um, years ago, he, um, when I just started school, um, he apologized. Um, and he, he had remarried by then and had another child. Um, and he apologized. And I'd known this person since he was 14 years old. So and we spent a whole evening talking about what happened, why it happened, what was going through his head, what were what was he experiencing? He had a, you know, he, his own, um, you know, these gener intergenerational experiences happen in families. You don't just pop up and become an abuser. You know, and so we talked about these intergenerational experiences in both our families, his past, what he went through with his own mother and father. I talked about mine in more depth um, and we just started understanding each other's experiences. Didn't condone what he did to me, but I knew he was sincere because he didn't just say, I'm sorry. We've spent now, you know, um, years talking about this stuff. Um, so we actually are in, we're close friends. I, I like his new wife. He's been married to her for like 19 years. I like her. Um, all the kids, yeah, you know, all the siblings from all the different moms <laughs> are friends. They're close. Um, so um, it's fine now. Um, and I see him like twice a year. He comes up here to visit. We have grandkids together now. So 
it's fine. But I knew he was genuinely sorry. Um, and he knows what I do for a living. He's really, one time he came to visit right when I started at OSH and he, he goes, is it really that prevalent? I was like, why, you, you think you were the only one? I know you didn't think that. I said, throw a rock, walk down the street and throw a rock. It's probably happening in that house and that house and that house and in some capacity or another. And he was, he's really kind of interested in, um, you know, the aspects of domestic violence. He, 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 you know, he, he shows interest in what I do. Um, so I know he's not just sorry, not mouthing the words. He's genuinely sorry. Um, and he has his own demons to contend with. The older he gets, the, um, the more, I think, regretful he is about how much of his life he spent um, doing that, not just to me, but his wife before him and all his girlfriends and stuff. So he's, you know, you get kind of our age and life starts passing before you on your kind of like re reflection. But we have a fun, our relationship's fine now. Um, our families are, are close. Um, his family members I've been close to for over 30 years. Um, so we're, we're all very close. Um, and we just, you know, you just kind of um, don't want to move on unless you've dealt with these things. And a lot of it was really painful to deal with. So, did yeah. He, did he ever go to counseling or any type of therapy to deal with that so that he didn't continue that onto his new marriage or his new like newer relationships um i think he did but but he you know he's never he probably will never tell me he did but i think he did i don't ask him i just notice his behavior throughout the years change and his behavior now that is not to say he still doesn't exhibit controlling behaviors he does you know like He'll come visit and he'll go, and you know, um, we'll go, well, this was before COVID, go to a restaurant and he'll be like, well, well, we need to go here. And I know we, we don't need to go anywhere. I want to go here. And since I'm driving, then, you know, you have these choices. He tries to still control and I may overreact, but that's just part of dealing with this, you know? Like, I just don't let him, you know, when he comes to visit, I don't let him control anything. And that's just part of dealing with being around me. I'm not married to you anymore. You're not in my life to that capacity. So when you come visit, you're on my turf, on my territory. I say what goes. And if you don't like it, you know, you can get on a plane and go back home. But he, but he concedes to that. He knows that. He understands that. And he's fine with it. Um, but I think sometimes I tend to overreact because I just wanna, now I wanna, you know, it's like, yeah, you're on my turf. So don't tell me what we're gonna do. I'll tell you kind of thing. I can get like that. And I, then those are the kind of um, reactions I have to watch about myself, right? So. Like I said, those, 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 um, those mechanisms that you use, those coping mechanisms that you use inside of the abuse don't tend to work too well for you outside of the abuse. But those take years, you know, those take years to, um, to get rid of or to deal with. But I, I think that it's kind of atypical um, I know that a lot of survivors have children with their abuser, but their abuser still, but they can't have any type of contact with their abuser because one, their abuser hasn't realized that they are abusive. They're not willing to go get the help and they haven't admitted it to themselves or their families and they refuse to apologize. So I think it's um, a very typical yeah. situation that you... Yeah, Joy, I was just getting ready to say it. This is not the norm. That's, that's one thing that really helped me heal was the apology and the change of behavior. 
um, over over time, over the years, um, and that and that can help you heal, you know. But most victims don't get that; they don't. Most victims, especially if they have children by the abuser and or have been married to him or her, um, have, this is gonna, just going to be a lifelong battle. And I think that's what most of our clients maybe don't understand. And I try to impart to all my clients, this isn't over. And, the, and you've, this is just beginning, you know. Yes, you're away from the physical, verbal, emotional abuse. Physically, you're away from it. But you're going to have to deal with this for the rest of your life, probably. Yeah. And your kids are too. I typically recommend clients to go no contact. Um, that means that if they are passing their kids on for drop-offs and pickups, there is a third party watching them. They text through the core apps. They have no contact and their abuser should not have their phone number, not know their address, because these are protective mechanisms. And once again, the abuser has to apologize and not just apologize, but change their behavior. Um, and I think that's another thing that a lot of victims don't know is that an apology is just words. It's empty until there's yep. action put behind Until it. there's action behind it. Yeah. Um, because then it, to, and then it just becomes another cycle, that honeymoon cycle. Exactly. Um, I'm going to say continuous action put behind it. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, you, yeah, all, all that I think really works well when you're first leaving. It just becomes a problem in family law because um, if you are married to that person, or if you have put that person on the birth certificate of the child um, and that person pursues um, any type of visitation or you know, you're locked into a divorce proceedings with this person, that all falls apart for most part. You know, your safety is then um, in question again. Right, because if if the child has a parent that's an abuser, just because that person's an abuser doesn't mean they don't get to parent their child. They have parental rights, Unless which makes my my job so difficult. Because then you know, people have to deal with that, you know, and then I, you know they think, oh, I left him and I got my kids away and he's not seeing my kids right now and he doesn't know where I live and doesn't know my phone number. Well, that all just becomes a moot point when you, when the courts enter into it, you know. Unless of course um, he's abusing you and your child, then you typically. Well, yes, then that's a whole different story. If there is. Um, um, abuse physical abuse or and or sexual abuse against the child that's a whole nother story yeah yeah but even then they still have rights to visitation and usually it's like within um a third party watching them and they have like an yeah then you know through the courts yeah. yeah through the courts then those visitations are usually normally um supervised um, but can you imagine the trauma on the child having to being forced to visit their own abuser? Yeah. You know, so or on the client being forced to go to court, whether it's Zoom or on the phone or in person, forced to be in the same situation with their abuser again. It's very, it's very triggering, yeah. you know. But a lot of the times um, from stories that I've like heard on YouTube or um, articles that I've read, a lot of the times the abuser thinks that by having, by having access to the, um, to the child, they have access to um, their victim. But if the victim continues no contact and they see that they're not reaching the victim, they give up visitation, they don't come around anymore. And soon they eventually release you until unless of course they get triggered again and they feel the need to control you, so. Yeah, I mean, 
yeah, they, you know, you're, you know, you'd almost be lucky if they just left you alone. And, you know, there are those types of abusers that just move on to the next victim, whether they have kids with you or not. They, you know, they just move on. Well, then you're pretty lucky. But, you know, if they don't, <laughs> you're being victimized over and over and over again because they can't control you in a physical sense any longer because you're not in the same household but they can certainly do it through the courts there's huge amounts of abuse that goes on in the family law courts you're being re-victimized and re-traumatized over and over and over and over again and it's not even just the abuser it's the abuser's lawyers it's the judge it's the police it's the whole entire system it's the whole system yeah I, I wish I would have had, you know, our sister's house to go to um, when I was younger. I would have ran to our sister's house. Um, but, you know, the times they change and the systems realize, uh, you know, over time, um, the needs of certain populations. So now we do have these resources, but they're far from perfect. <laughs> because really, unless you're experiencing it, no one cares. No one really cares. You know, well, that doesn't happen in my family and that didn't happen to me. So, you know, let me put my makeup on and go out and party at the club because what, and you know, if it doesn't happen to them, you know, why should they care? It's not happening to them. But the minute it starts happening <laughs> to you or someone you know, or someone in your family or your friend or whatever, then it all becomes an issue because it may happen to one person, but it affects that whole, that, that victim's um, whole um, social network. And it most likely is happening to someone within their social network they just don't know. Huh? It most likely is happening to someone in that social network they just don't know. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's embarrassing, to be honest. It was embarrassing for me because everybody looked at me like, oh, you're so smart and you're, you're so pretty and you're so funny and, and this and that and other. Well, so what? <laughs> Now I've got to live up to this thing you think I am with this mistake over here that is just an embarrassment. And I now I'm embarrassed. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to tell you how I um, lost my job or, you know, how I got this black eye or how I got this lump on my head or why I can't go here or there or, you know, it just because, and then you start lying. Oh, the lying, lying, lie, lie, lie. And then you start realizing people aren't even believing the lie, but you still have to lie anyway, because you just can't come out and say it until you're ready to, mm -hmm. you know. What would you tell victims, um, how do you, what would you say to victims to get them out of that embarrassment to like seek help? Like what advice would you give victims? Well, I, I would say there's nothing to be embarrassed about. And it's easy for me to sit here and say it, but because I'm not in it anymore, right? And if someone would have said that to me, I, it would have been like, um, yeah, I know, I shouldn't be. But, you know, we have these emotions. We cannot help what we feel, right? And you're, you're still going to have that emotion of being embarrassed of the embarrassment of it all. Um, and I just think it's part of domestic violence. It's just part of being a victim. It's just something you have to move through and move past. I don't think there's anything I can say to someone and say, you know, don't be embarrassed. I mean, I can say that, but really, until I don't feel that as an emotion, it's just someone telling me I don't need to be, and then I know it in my head, but that still doesn't make it real. And I think that's one of the it, 
the hardest issues about domestic violence is because it's such a slow process. You know, you've got to move through all this stuff and navigate all this stuff before you can even take the steps of getting help. And then once you do get the help, now you're dealing with a whole nother set of issues and problems that you have to deal with. It's a constant emotional drain. One thing, my aunt went through abuse um, and one thing my grandpa told her when she finally reached out for help was, cause he was like, why did you take so long? And she's like, I was embarrassed. And he's like, don't be embarrassed because you're not the weak one. That abuser is the weak one for hitting you in the first place. You were strong, like, he was like, you shouldn't have taken them, but you were strong enough to stay and take that abuse while he was weak enough to abuse you. And he was like, the abuser is the weakest link in oh, the yeah. situation. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the horror of your life. They're, um, they're, they're the, your grandfather's right. They're the weak ones. It's not you, it's them. I mean, who, who uses power and control? Who wants to have all power and all control over a person except for someone who's extremely weak and someone who has, um, you know, a lot of issues. <laughs> A lot, a whole lot of issues, self-esteem self issues, narcissism. Um, um, they may have been abused themselves when they were younger, and then they have, then, then they're trying to, you know, control you because that's the only thing they know is power and control, you know, and they have to deal with their issues. Um, that's why I think <laughs> um, perpetrator. Um, 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 classes and all this stuff is a waste of time unless you as the abuser want to give up that power and control. There's no, all these DV classes for perpetrators and DV um, assessment perpetrator trainings and victims panels are all such to me such a waste of time unless you want to give up power and control. There may be one person in that class of 50 abusers who is that person. Now, having said that, maybe they're not such a waste of time um, in that if you get to one person, you know, at least it's that one person. But most abusers don't want to give up power and control because in reality, we all even if we don't abuse other human beings or animals or any living thing in that way, we all have an amount of, of wanting to have power and control in us. It's just when it's out of balance and you use it to, 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 um, to hurt someone for your own advantage is when it's dangerous. Um, but really, ask any abuser, do they want to give up power and control? No, no, no. And if you don't want to give up power and that, that aspect of power and control and how you use it to, to put others in danger and hurt others, um, then it's really, you can go to a 50 million classes. It's not going to help. And so thinking that these abusers are going to change is not realistic. So I kind of look at my, my advocacy through that lens um, and then and plan accordingly. Like this person isn't gonna change. And even if this person changes, that's their business. That's on them to change. You, you have your own issues to deal with and your own strides to make for your own personal safety and your children's safety. You have your own road to go. But I, I don't believe in perpetrator training and it, it just, it doesn't work. They do it because the courts order them to do it. And then they just do it and they're the same person. 99.9% .9 of the time. Is that all abusers? No. Like, some, like, my, like my abuser, somehow, somewhere down the line, he either went somewhere and dealt with it and, um, and it affected him 
and and he very easily will admit that he abused me um, and others. Um, so he gave up his power and control, although there's still vestiges of it in his personality. I don't know if that'll ever go away. But then he recognizes it when it's called out to him, like, oh, hold on, buddy. <laughs> you know, but for the most part, that <clears throat> that will never happen to for or that will never happen for most abusers. And so victims need to really understand that. Like Johnny isn't going to change because you think he loves you. You can't just work it out with Johnny. Johnny needs to go figure those things out for himself and your life keeps going and you have to make it as positive as possible. You have to save yourself. This isn't, this isn't kumbaya. DV isn't one of those kumbaya kinds of things. Let's save each other. No, no, I'm saving myself. You go over there and save you in any kind of way you need to, but I'm doing what I have to for myself and my kids. And I've run into a lot of clients that were, well, what's going to happen to him? And, you know, I just was, I, you know, I'm just a nice person and I wanted him to see his kid. And I, I, I just feel like, you know, you should just be forgiving and no, this isn't, this isn't a platform for all that. This is a platform to forgive yourself. This is a platform to help yourself. This is a platform to um, do what you need to do for yourself. You need to become extremely selfish. This isn't about Johnny and how he's feeling. Wow, that's very powerful. And thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I think yeah. that this um, will go out and touch the heart of a lot of our clients or a lot of the listeners that hear this and maybe people who don't know a lot about the aspects of domestic violence because I feel like the more awareness that we spread the more that we make abusers uncomfortable because right now the system is rigged so that the abusers are comfortable abusing people. Yeah and I think you have to you 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 know there I mean I'm living proof you you can survive this you can move on you can have a great life I have a wonderful life I have wonderful friends I have a wonderful family um kids um job um yeah I don't um I don't have anything really bad to say about my life right now I'm I'm pretty comfortable you know, um, but there was a time when I lived in terror and I had nothing. Um, and so you can do that for yourself. It takes a lot of work and it takes time, but never once through it all did I care about my abuser or what he was going through or what he needed to deal with. I became extremely selfish. And, and like I said, you gotta do that. And it's hard for some people who are the type of person that it, they're nurturing, they're giving, they care about, you know, that's what they do. But abusers look for that. They look for that type of person, you know. Um, you know, 99% of our clients, if you ask them, they're nurturing, caring people. There's nothing wrong with being that. Um, but it's, but it's, they should know that that is something that abusers hone in on. And you should know the red flags when you see it and only be caring and loving and giving to those who deserve it. And I think um, setting boundaries as soon as you yep. identify that you are a nurturing, caring person, a lot of people define it as an empath. If you define yourself in that light to set up boundaries and to yeah. learn those boundaries. And as soon as someone tries to cross those boundaries once, dismiss them from your life. Yeah, it's like, I always think of it as a house with a fence around it, right? And a gate. You and all your, the people you love and respect and who love and respect you are inside the house. And outside the gate 
are just all these people you don't even know. So you're the gatekeeper. You stand at the gate and you say who comes in that gate and who doesn't. You, you're the gatekeeper. So you have to be able to have boundaries, understand your boundaries, understand what you value, understand your own value system. And if that person knocking at the gate trying to come in doesn't even remotely come close to that, don't let them in the gate. They can just stay out there and do what they do. But you can't let them in to your into your world, into your gate. And it's sad as human beings with that we have to do these things to keep ourselves safe. But I live in reality and it is what it is. And that is what we have to do to keep ourselves safe. I don't think we were put on this earth or created to be anything other than loving and caring um, for one another, but that's not the world, that's not reality. We don't live in that type of world um, and we never will. So we just need to keep ourselves and the people we love and care about safe. Okay. And that's it for me. <laughs> I guess. Unless there's in some other questions, I don't know. I think I'm gonna close out. I feel like we ended on a very powerful note and I kind of just wanna leave it up at that. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, it was yeah. very powerful and impactful and especially the words that you left for our um, survivors, I will say not victims. Uh, thank you all yeah. for listening to this episode of Confabulation, and we hope to catch you on the next episode. Thank you for having me. Everyone stay safe. <laughs>